Welcome to Across the Margin, the podcast. I am your host, Michael Shields. Across the Margin is a proud member of the Osiris Media Group. Head over to OsirisPod.com to check out all they have going on. That is OsirisPod.com. In this episode, I have for you an interview with Danielle Allen, the James Bryant Conant University Professor at Harvard University, where she's also the Principal Investigator for the Democratic Knowledge Project. In 2020, she won the Cluj Prize, I hope I said that right, for Achievement in the Study of Humanity, administered by the Library of Congress, that recognizes work in disciplines not covered by Nobel Prizes. She is the author or co-editor of many books, including Our Declaration, a reading of the Declaration of Independence in Defense of Equality, and Democracy in the Time of Coronavirus, which is the focus of this episode. In Democracy in the Time of Coronavirus, Danielle untangles the U.S. government's COVID-19 victories and failures to offer a plan for creating a more resilient democratic polity, one that can better respond to both the present pandemic and future crises. Looking to history, Allen identifies the challenge faced by democracies in other times that required strong governmental action. In an analysis spanning from ancient Greece to the Reconstruction Amendments and the present day, Allen argues for the relative effectiveness of collaborative federalism over authoritarian compulsion and for the unifying power of a common cause. But for democracy to endure, we, as participatory citizens, must commit to that cause a just and equal social contract in support for good governance. In this discussion, Danielle and I explore what exactly an ideal social contract that serves as the basis for a functioning constitutional democracy would look like, while examining how currently that social contract is fundamentally broken. We discuss how important leadership is when dealing with massive crises, how the prospect of a common purpose could be the most powerful tool in the democratic toolkit, how federalism can be an asset in trying times, what the federal government and state governments should have done to combat COVID-19 and much, much more. It's a great book, an excellent read that offers a whole lot of solutions as we deal with the end, hopefully, of this pandemic and future crises down the line. This is a great interview. I have no doubt you will enjoy this discussion with Daniel Allen. So thank you very much for uh, coming on the program. I really appreciate it. It's an uh, excellent book. It was really eye-opening in a lot of ways. So thank you. Thank you, Mike. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thank you for reading. Of That's course. The best. Yeah, it's, it's a nice, <laughs> concise book. It's really, it's, it's an excellent read. I, I could not recommend it more. But I think a really interesting place to start, it's kind of the crucial idea that's in your book. Um, it's the notion that uh, our, our social contract can be a basis for uh, a functioning constitutional democracy. And I was hoping you could discuss this idea some, and particularly what an ideal social contract would look like and 
both normal and pandemic times, because I think that really can uh, kick things off for us. Sure, I appreciate that. Thanks for asking that question about the social contract. Mm -hmm. I know it's it's not a phrase that sort of rolls off most people's tongues, you know, so Mm -hmm. easily or naturally. Um, It comes easy for me because I'm a political philosopher. And so we spent a lot of time thinking about how do you figure out what the purpose of a society is anyway and what people's roles are. Mm -hmm. And so the idea of a social contract just captures the notion that our political institutions belong to all of us. They represent something that we all invest in. We all have to do work to support them and we carry responsibilities in that regard. But the reason we do this is because we get a set of protections back from those institutions. Mm-hmm. We get our rights protected and we get sort of basic protection for material well-being and security. Um, the ancient Romans used to talk, call it sort of salus populi, the health and well-being of the people. So a healthy social contract is one in which Um, If we citizens fulfill our responsibilities, we can expect to have basic protections Um, and an unhealthy social contract is where that's broken. And I feel like the pandemic just showed us a really badly broken social contract. We watched all these working people, um, you know, frontline workers, bus drivers, um, educators who are taking public transit, meatpacking plant employees, you know, these tax paying people going to work without access to testing and PPE and dying. Mm-hmm. And, you know, nothing could be plainer that you've got a broken social contract when, when that kind of thing is happening. Yeah, you just you nailed my second question, too. It was just kind of how, you know, the pandemic really did reveal how our social contract is fundamentally broken. And, um, you know, it was fascinating. It was an eye opening experience that we all went through together. And it really showed a lot of gaps that we're dealing with. Um, what's frustrating while reading your book, um, and a lot of us were thinking about this idea throughout the whole thing, is that you know, this, pro- this problem that, you know, it was a huge problem, of course, but it really could have been handled in a much, much better ways. There was, there were solutions that were sitting right before our eyes that some other countries stepped, uh, stepped up and used. And I was wondering if you could talk about some of these solutions and, you know, how and why we kind of failed in delivering on these tools that were available to get us through. Yeah, and no, I appreciate that. You know, we, we did all have a real sense of frustration, and I really shared that sense of frustration. And I actually want to give you two answers um, to your question. One is a kind of question about our basic moral commitments, and then the other is about, you know, confidence in government and things like that. And so on the first point, you know, for me, it was just really painful as we watched all of the elite organizations in society, colleges and universities, the NBA and the like, they all figured out how to protect themselves and started building bubbles to protect themselves. And then ordinary people were going without. And so just this sort of basic idea that it's everybody's job to protect their own, Mm -hmm. um, rather than it's being all of our job to protect all of us together. That's where I felt like the deep and most profound mistake was. And I think it takes a moral reorientation to get back to the place of recognizing that we have this job we share, which is looking out for each other. So that's sort of part one. And then part two is a sort of basic competence issue. Yes, you know, we watched Germany, we watched Australia kind of pull together in that way with that spirit of we're going to figure out how to take care of everybody all together. And we weren't able to do it. And partly that was because of the polarization, you know, that just totally destroyed our politics. Partly it was because of just, you know, brute incompetence um, in the leadership in the Trump administration in the White House. And then partly it was because, you know, we've really let a culture develop where we don't sort of bother learning from others. And so although there were good answers in Germany and South Korea and Australia, you know, we didn't really bother making those calls and learning from those people who had gotten to the experience earlier than we did. 
people. Absolutely. Yeah, I kept thinking a lot during the whole thing about how problematic the cult of individuality was. But I mean, you also point out, too, that, I mean, in Germany, in Taiwan, you know, they value that in in an intense way as well. And that didn't really set them back either. So that was a piece of it, but just the piece of it, not the whole thing there. Um, You Mm -hmm. kind of mentioned competency. And I think this was a interesting and important topic. You discuss how important leadership is when dealing with massive crises. And and you point out some crucial ways leaders must act in times such as a pandemic. And I'd love to hear you talk about them some. What would, uh, you know, a good leader, which we didn't have at the time, look like and, you know, kind of what sub- steps they must take in these, you know, situations? Yeah. You know, here and there, we saw examples of good leadership and very often at the local level, mayors, county commissioners and the like. And one thing set them all apart. They communicated, 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 you know, whether it was a weekly newsletter or a daily newsletter. And they had basically three goals when they communicated to people. The first was they shared what they knew, whatever it was. And they also admitted the limits of their knowledge and the fact that they were operating in uncertainty. They didn't try to pretend they knew it all, but said, I want you to know everything I know. Transparency. That's your point one. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But also acknowledging that things were going to change because knowledge was changing really quickly. And then point two, the other thing they did was really spell out, you know, what are the judgment calls that have to be made so that people could see along the way, we're going to have to make judgment calls about, do we bring in public health measures? Um, Do we uh, try to accelerate testing? Do we use quarantines and the like? They let those be real questions and exhibited themselves wrestling with them and then making those judgment calls. And so then the third thing is that then when it was time to make the judgment call, they could do that on the basis of having already invited people to see that there's a judgment call to be made. Mm-hmm. It's not that there was a kind of like crystal clear answer that descends, you know, like tablets from Mount Sinai or something like that. Mm-hmm. It's a judgment call. Yeah. They're working in, synthet- in synthetic ways to make those judgments. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the integrated approach was something you pointed out a bunch too. And you're kind of alluding that with those answers as well. And exactly, yeah. it was really interesting to see you know, when you did, we're talking about judgment calls and the focus on that, um, kind of conversely, you know, obviously science is such an incredible tool in this, but there was something um, where you mentioned that the more hours someone was uh, taking science classes, um, the less likely they were involved in, in you know, civically in, in, in their community. Yeah. That kind of blew my mind a little bit, just hearing that. Did, well, why, why was that the case, you think? Well, it's interesting. I mean, I think that's got to be probably more about how we teach science than about science as such. But yes, there's this sort of amazing data that the the more students achieve in the science fields, the less likely they are to be civically engaged. So exactly. There's a sort of mismatch. And I I was very frustrated with all the rhetoric about just trust the science, do what the scientists say and the like. Science is critical. We need expert advice, but we have to recognize that what scientists can do is advise on how we should do what we should do. But there's this prior question about what our goals should be. Yeah. And that is always a question that involves ethics and values and what our core commitments are. Um, so yes, we absolutely need the advice of scientists and so forth, but we really need to cultivate that capacity for judgment and judgment focused on our core values. Love it. You, uh, you describe, and I really love this idea, the uh, prospect of a common purpose as probably the most powerful tool in the democratic toolkit. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about why that is the case, or why you mentioned that being the case, and uh, discuss, you know, how we this can be actually, you know, be realized. And and I mean, because I think a lot of times when you talk about that common purpose, especially in a place where we're dealing with 300 million people, um, mm-hmm. it can be 
felt like you can feel that it's kind of a fantasy to have that idea, but mm-hmm. you point out a couple of times, you don't believe it to be so. So I'd love to hear you hear about this power of the common purpose. Yeah. Well, maybe what I'll do is try to offer a kind of contrast to September 11th um, versus the pandemic. So if our response to September 11th had played out the way the pandemic did, Mm -hmm. what would have happened is that, you know, every school and university, every, you know, major league sports team, every major corporation would have massively ramped up its security operation and added an anti-terrorism operation to itself. All right. And then, whole swaths of the country would have been not involved at all in this activity. Mm -hmm. And so now how did we avoid that? Instead, we had a sense of common purpose. Mm -hmm. Um, We recognized that we needed to figure out how to protect ourselves collectively from a new threat. Um, And so, you know, that meant a lot of challenges, all the changes um, in the FAA, sort of airport proceedings and the like, Um, you know, the sort of encouragement to people to alert um, officials if you see a bag left on the subway or whatever. So engaging ordinary people and participating. Yeah. And the sense that, you know, we all understand now that there's a a new kind of risk in our world and in our different roles, our different organizations, we can all contribute to keeping that risk to a minimum. Mm -hmm. And just by sort of putting the question out there that way, gives everybody the chance to figure out, you know, how they can chip in and participate And the beautiful thing about a common purpose is you don't even have to sort of spell out what every single person's role is. If you give everybody the same question, you know, we're mostly pretty smart enough to figure out for ourselves how we can pitch in. So that's why it's so powerful. The right question, the right orientation, folks start to figure out how they can contribute to the effort. Yeah. And you just saying that that last line you just mentioned was, it it felt like you were uh, kind of, uh, alluding to the fact that we were asking the wrong questions a lot during this and and what you also offered which was great the, is what you believe to be the right questions and and just it gave it another, another way to view the whole thing throughout throughout the book it's just like why aren't we yeah. doing it this way it was great um a great chapter was about um it was chapter three about federalism oh, okay. deep oh, in the history. Like yeah the, the historic viewpoint was really fantastic um and you make this incredible argument of how federalism can be an excellent asset in a crisis. And I was wondering if you could speak to how so, because there's a lot of different angles that could be covered. Yeah, and no, I appreciate that. Thank you. That's my favorite chapter as well. So I'm glad you enjoyed it. Fascinating. Yeah. So, you know, when things were going so badly for us at the beginning of COVID, a lot of people were casting around for answers. Like, why is the U.S. screwing up so badly? And one answer people often gave was that it was because of our federal system, that we didn't have a centralized enough government to get things done. So I wanted to argue against that because I think it's wrong. Um, And the important thing that federalism gives you is people who are experts at sort of different levels of society. And if you just take, for example, schools, you know, one of the things we had to do is keep kids and teachers safe in schools. That meant getting ventilation right in schools. Mm -hmm. Now, there's literally no way sitting in Washington to know what a given school needs. You have to have the teacher who tells you all the windows in my classroom are nailed shut. There is no way I can open the windows Mm -hmm. in this classroom. You need that local context specific knowledge to know how a solution is going to play out in a place. And so that's what federalism really gives us Mm. is the chance to sort of pull knowledge in from the really local level, from the state level, and then kind of connect that to a national purpose. And so if we knew how to operate the machinery of our federalist system, um, if we knew how to harmonize it, that was the, the word the founders used. 
um, then we could really benefit from that flexibility and that local knowledge. The trouble is, I feel like we've sort of lost the owner's manual to our antique machinery. So. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, that's good. I mean, it's such a good point. Man, you think, I mean, so many parts of the country are so different. It's nuanced. I mean, finding out exactly what the needs are at a local uh, level is so important. I thought it was great. You pointed out too. Um, you know, a lot of times when they do push it off to the States, you, it's not just pushing it off to the States. That's not how ideally right. it works. And it, it's set up to kind of make it all work in this, this, uh, you know, this this way where they're all working together, they're harvesting tools of the federal government, not just pushing it off on the states. I think that's important yep. notion. Exactly. Yeah, no, that's really the most important point is a lot of people have gotten this idea, and I think it's yeah. a mistake that mm -hmm. federalism just means let everybody do whatever they want. Mm -hmm. Well, that's exactly the opposite of what it means because mm -hmm. like that's why the whole thing was breaking, breaking under the Articles yeah. of Confederation in the first place. Mm -hmm. It was mm -hmm. precisely to avoid having all the states do whatever they wanted, that yep. they wrote the Constitution. <laughs> yep. you know? Real it all so in. the whole purpose, exactly, is that we're supposed to be harmonizing across jurisdictions mm -hmm. towards some shared national purpose. And we need to recover that perspective on federalism, I believe. Absolutely. It's 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 definitely, definitely a great chapter. Um there's you offered in 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 a real concise way both uh, what could have been done or should have been done on a federal level and a state level to really fix this. And I think it's important to look back um, to figure out what what went wrong and and you know what we can do if this were to happen again or any um, crisis similar. But can you speak on that a little bit? What the federal government could have done to handle COVID nineteen better, and also what states should have done. And I know there's some crossover as we were just discussing there. Right. Well, I mean, I want to acknowledge that it's a, you know, a very evolving pandemic and the virus has changed so much. So in a certain sense, what we need now is so very different from what we needed at the beginning. My answers really are about that early phase in the pandemic. And in that early phase of the pandemic, um, we really did have the potential to massively reduce the circulation of the virus without shutting down the economy. Um, and we could have done that by really accelerating our build out of the infrastructure of testing in particular, testing and contact tracing. And as you know, we've gotten there eventually right now. Finally, we have tests available. Yeah. <laughs> finally, the federal government sent tests out to people and we can see what a difference it makes, right? Like then you yeah. can tell, are you negative or positive? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. it's very clarifying. So we needed that early on. And the biggest issue there was that, you know, we really needed the federal government to take a wartime attitude to sort of reorganize supply chains in support of testing. That didn't happen until just way too late um, in the game. Um, and so states were left sort of scrambling and trying to solve problems that at their scale they couldn't solve. Um, and the federal government wasn't taking advantage of what states and localities could really do well, which was, you know, get things to people and help people implement effectively. Yeah. What's... um pretty daunting and and but it's understandable too is how uh you discuss often how young people especially are losing faith in democracy and then you know towards the end you're talking about i mean not only did the pandemic highlight the have highlight you know some of these failing failings that that you know uh, really hurt a lot of people and cost lives pre-pandemic um people were already being failed too i mean they're the elderly, essential workers, the young people, people of color. I mean, all kinds of different Americans have been failed already. Um, so there's a trend of people losing faith in democracy. And do you see a way to rebuild that or, or, or you know, it, it makes sense why they are uh, losing this faith. Yeah. 
I mean, I think democracy's got to deliver, right? Democracy uh, yeah. has to provide those protections. That comes back to that social contract idea. Yeah. You know, we can ask people to participate in democracy, but only if they're actually then getting something back for their participation yeah. in the form of, again, basic protection of their rights and foundation mm-hmm. for well-being and security. Mm-hmm. So we need to tackle our governance challenges so that our democracy's state and national can actually deliver for people. Yeah, hold, hold them to task a little bit. So uh, just yeah. bring it home. Um, I love the idea too of um, an emergency being a kind of an opportunity. You do some historical uh, talk about that, you know, with the Romans and roads for supply lines, penicillin and uh, nuclear power for World War II. That's, you know, I was always hoping that like this would be a moment where, you know, we did get some things with the vaccine and, you know, the de- new delivery method. But I was hoping this would be a big moment where we can kind of use this terrible thing. But I love how you discussed that. But since you wrote the um, book and released it, you know, obviously there's been changes and you were just alluding to that and new variants. And now we got the reduction of aid and, you know, uh, reduction of free shots for, for people who are uninsured. But I was wondering if there's anything happening now you would add or discuss to the, in the book if you were to write it right now or any interesting current thoughts about kind of where we are in this stage of the pandemic and in relation to, you know, democracy as well. Well, maybe what I'll do is point to um, two good things that have come out of the pandemic, just right. for the sake of uh, ending with some hope and, and one thing that would be good to kind of hold on to and work on. Mm-hmm. So I actually think that we've had a lot of health-related breakthroughs that could change um, medicine going forward. So the home testing for COVID um, mm-hmm. is huge because it ultimately means we should be able to do home tests for strep for flu, for a whole bunch of things we've been going to the doctor for. And if we could take that many doctor's visits out of our system, that would be huge. It would be you know real reduction of the burden on our health system and, and yes, really improve our ability to do preventative work. So that's gigantic. That should transform um, clinical practice. Mm-hmm. Um, a second thing that's been really amazing is that in the sort of inefficiency of our government, um, all kinds of civil society actors stepped up and got things done. So here in Massachusetts, for instance, we had a lot of trouble with the state-led vaccine rollout at the beginning. Mm-hmm. And in that vacuum, all these consortia of nonprofits formed this one called the Black Boston COVID Coalition, for instance, and Berkshire mm-hmm. County COVID Collaborative. They got organized with get out the vote techniques and mobilization drives and so forth and got shots into people's arms. In the Boston case, it was a group of nonprofit leaders who had not actually formed a coalition previously. And now they've sort of found common cause. And so they're, they're getting a lot of other good things done for their communities. And that's a really powerful development, sort of rebuilding a kind of civic fabric for us when it had been fraying for so many years. So those are two good things. And then something I think to focus on is this issue of how do we get back to harmonizing federal, state, and local efforts. Um, And here's a place where I think we need to acknowledge that our current federal government as structured isn't really focused on that, isn't able really to do that harmonization work. And so there's a question to ask about how we can create capacity for the federal government to do a better job of linking up the federal level, state level, and the municipal level. So, I mean, the, the infrastructure funding is a good example of that. Um, and, you know, the challenges of getting all those pieces lined up together right now is a place where we need something similar. So. Yeah, absolutely. Use the word harmony between all these agencies is so crucial. I like to hear those positive things because, I mean, COVID <laughs> made me a little wary that our government might not be ready for any crisis, period. Yeah. Um, but yeah. that's why the book is so great. I'm glad. Thank you for taking the time to talk about it. Really, it's a kind of a Thanks, blueprint, blueprint of what we can do and some positives and, and a lot of things that we can learn from. So thank you very much, Danielle. I appreciate you taking the thank time. Thank you. 
Thank Excellent. you. Pleasure to talk with you. Very nice to meet you. As well. Nice Take to meet good you. Take care. Too. This podcast is in the loop, the Legion of Osiris podcasts. Osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with live experiences and podcasts about artists and topics you love. Get in the loop at osirispod.com.